What I would like to talk about this evening is happiness. And sometimes people find themselves trying to solve the mystery of what it is that great religions or great spiritual traditions have in common. And sometimes it seems what it is they have in common is really quite a, a wondrous ability to talk about suffering in infinite detail. And just so, of course, that you don't feel disappointed, I will let you know that tomorrow night Fred is indeed going to talk about suffering. <laughs> but tonight I would like to talk about something a little different. Often suffering or limitation or imperfection or difficulty is talked about so much in this past that I think at times it is easy to forget that this practice is actually about happiness and freedom. And I think especially when we kind of travel our own inner journeys and it feels very dark or it feels like there's a lot of shadows, it often feels to us too that happiness is something that is very far away from us. In part of my own training, um, working with a teacher I had, Remember there was a time when we spent a period of about six weeks discussing hell realms. And we learned all the different varieties of hell realms that might be possible and how to get there and what different actions which would, would end up with particular kind of hellish results. And at the end, I mean, I, I could have written a book on, on hell realms. But what I also realized, that what seemed to be a kind of missing ingredient for me, was a sense not only of, in this path, acknowledging suffering, acknowledging difficulty, learning how to be skillful, but that this path is really all about the end of suffering, about understanding the nature of happiness. And I think this is really what, for many of us, does move us to begin this journey. Most of us don't come on retreats in order to become more intimately acquainted with suffering. Um, most people in meditation are not that much in love with suffering. Instead, there's something else that inspires us. And I think probably what we share in our journey is really a wish to understand a greater level, a greater depth of happiness in our lives, in ourselves. Somehow it's very simple. Wanting to understand or have access to a greater depth of peace, of joy, I mean, there are people who come into meditation, of course, you know, with really very grandiose ambitions about, you know, having certain kinds of experiences, uh, 
certain kinds of, of revelations. But I think for many of us it is very simple. How to live with greater happiness in our life. How to live with greater peace and greater joy. And it seems clear also that understanding is an essential ingredient in happiness. Happiness doesn't come as an automatic result of sitting on a meditation cushion. This we all know. Happiness doesn't come through having a big portfolio of retreats that we've done. This too that we know if you've done a number of retreats. It is clear that understanding is an ingredient in happiness. So, when we come on a retreat, when we sit in meditation, when we walk, it seems that we are facing certain tasks. This is often how we see it. That we might be facing the task of understanding how to free our hearts of fear, of self-centeredness, of confusion, and of anger. Because then we first sit in meditation, or sometimes many retreats on when we sit in meditation, what we encounter initially is not necessarily so much happiness, but instead what we encounter initially tends to be more in the form of our demons, the parts of ourselves that are difficult, we're aware of our, perhaps our, our lack of harmony with what is. And so sometimes I think when we are faced with our, our shadows or our demons of anger or doubt or fear or negativity, that at times we might accept that perhaps we have to postpone happiness because we've got this other work to do right now. And it seems at times that freeing ourselves of our demons is a very solemn kind of undertaking. You know, most people don't kind of skip happily into this battle and say, oh yes, lovely, you know, another hour of negativity or wonderful, you know, or an hour of fear. For most people it feels like a really quite a, a solemn and a rather serious business. And I think when you, times on retreats, if you, you know, um, kind of look around at the faces and the expressions on the faces of those that you're sharing the retreat with, and at times people do look, indeed, very serious, at times even really rather unhappy or miserable, and I think sometimes there, there feels to be a kind of unspoken agreement that we're all going to be miserable together now so that we can be happy together later. The Buddha once said that this is the path of happiness, which leads to the highest happiness. And that the highest happiness is peace. I think it is helpful to remind ourselves of that the peace and the happiness that the Buddha was speaking about is not, is not a future peace. 
not a happiness that comes later. Nor is it mentioned anywhere that suffering is somehow a kind of spiritual stepping stone to peace. You know, that the more you suffer now, the happier you will be later. (coughs) Nor is it mentioned in any way that peace and that happiness is somehow dependent upon arranging our world or our mind in a way in which there's no arising of the difficult or the unpleasant or the challenging. It's not mentioned that happiness comes or that peace comes after the end of those things. The happiness and the peace, I feel, that is spoken about in this path is perhaps a qualitatively different kind of happiness and peace than we may be used to thinking about. It is a very simple happiness. In many ways, a very simple peace. It's a quality of contentment, of a willingness to open, and a willingness to take joy in simplicity, the simplest things. Seeing a tadpole moving in the water, listening to a bird, just feeling the wind, the willingness to connect, and the happiness of being touched, the happiness that is found in in receptivity. It is also the peace that is found in letting go. Letting the feeling, not the deprivation of letting go, but feeling also the freedom and the celebration and the openness that comes with letting go of our judgment, our images, our opinions, our conclusions. How the letting go of that in some way reveals to us such a deeper way of being touched and of being present and of learning to take delight. The happiness too of sensitivity and the peace that comes with sensitivity. That when we walk, we just walk. When we listen, we just listen. When we sit, when we just sit. The peace and the happiness that comes also in being alone, in having the opportunity to explore the kind of the wonder and the mystery just of being present within ourselves and with all things different kind of happiness, a very simple, a very calm, and yet in many ways a very profound peace, a very profound happiness. The happiness of welcoming, of openness and welcoming, what each moment brings to us. I think it is very true that this quality of happiness 
is at times very different and very alien to the ways that we are conditioned to think about happiness. So often we think of happiness as a result. You have to work for it. We learn in our culture, you work for happiness, or you earn happiness, or in some way you have to pay for happiness. I think also that we learn in our culture, in our society, that happiness in some strange way has something to do with personal power. The power to avoid the unpleasant and to attain the pleasant. This is somehow a measure of our capacity to be happy. The power to avoid, the power to get rid of the difficult, the power to achieve, to redecorate or to rearrange <coughs> our world or our mind. We are often taught or learn somehow that this power has something to do with our capacity to be happy. The power to realize our desires or the power to realize our ambition. In some ways in the, in the West, this is almost described as being the path to happiness. I think some, in many ways, this kind of learning and this kind of conditioning creates a very limited idea for ourselves of what happiness actually is. And I think, too, when we carry this burden, then achieving happiness feels like a very complicated process because it, then there's so much to do in order to be happy. And sometimes we pursue then happiness. You know, in some countries it's even written in the Constitution. Pursue happiness with a great sense of earnestness. We're going towards something which is separate. Going towards something which is future. Going towards something which belongs in the next moment. It's a, it's a little like that, that very, in that Eastern story, or Sufi story, whatever, some kind of story of, of the two fish that in the ocean where this young fish swims up to the older fish and says, please, you know, you've been around for a lot longer than me. Can you tell me where on earth I find the ocean? I've been looking for it everywhere in the center, near the shores, in the deep, in the shallow, and nowhere can I find the ocean. Can you give me some direction? And the older fish looked at this young fish in bewilderment and said, the ocean is this thing that you are in right now. And the younger fish is so disappointed. This is not the ocean. This is just water. And swims away to look somewhere else. Sometimes I think that the earnestness, the seriousness that we bring, or the intensity that we bring to our search for happiness, can blind us to the nature 
of what happiness is and can also blind us to understanding really what the nature of unhappiness is. Part of our, or one of the results of our exposure to these strange ideas of happiness is that we tend to equate unhappiness with something being wrong. And of course, in our culture, you know, if something's wrong, then the correct response is to fix it. This is all to do again with our notions of power and control. If something's wrong, we should fix it. We feel at times a heavy sense of responsibility to fix what we label as being wrong within ourselves. If we feel unhappy or discontented or unfulfilled in some way, one of our first responses tends to be to look for what is wrong. Either in the world, we might look in the world around us, our personal world, is there something wrong with the objects we have? Is there something wrong with our relationship? Is there something wrong with our lifestyle? Is there something wrong with the people that we're with? Or we look to our inner world. What is wrong? What needs fixing? Our thoughts, our feelings, our personalities, our personal histories. The idea, looking with the idea of fixing and altering in some way so that we can reach this arrival point of what we consider to be right. Now, this doesn't imply, of course, that everything in the world is wonderful and terrific and just as it should be. And it doesn't imply that everything with ourselves is absolutely just in fantastic shape, you know, and needs no attention and we can just hang out in eternal bliss. There is much in the world, obviously, that leads to pain, that leads to sorrow, that leads to confusion, that leads to fear. There may be much in ourselves that also leads them. And all, all of us need the courage to say no, the courage of restraint, the courage of, of action, of right action, of wise response, of transformation. What I would like really for us to do a little, is just to reflect in our own world, our inner world at this moment, to reflect on the idea or to reflect on the notion that our well-being, our capacity to be, that our happiness is somehow dependent upon the objects that we're in contact with, either outwardly or inwardly. Is your capacity for happiness, for peace, right now in your life, dependent and reliant upon the objects, this includes thoughts, feelings, people, situations, that you are in contact with in this moment in your life.
We are seduced and conditioned to believe that this is what is true. That our happiness, our freedom even, our well-being is indeed and rests indeed upon the quality and number of objects that we're in contact with. This is, of course, the myth that motivates so much of the busyness and the restlessness in our lives, in our world, the busyness of gaining, of becoming, of possessing, the mission of consumption, believing that happiness and well-being and freedom rests upon the quality and the number of objects that we're in contact with. It's the restlessness that often leads us to be endlessly rearranging the furniture in our world, seeking for something that's more promising, more exciting, more exhilarating, more interesting, more intense. When something doesn't offer us that anymore in our lives, what has happened? When we feel a person doesn't interest us anymore, when something we've been engaged with bores us, when we feel to no longer be gratified by something, how often, when we are no longer offered what we expect or think should be offered from an object, we feel that it's okay just to dismiss it, just to reject it, just to turn away from it. Now, I do think that most of us have learned this lesson in our lives that this is not true. I mean, we've all been around for a while. You know, we've all had the opportunities to perhaps have lots of things, do lots of things, be in many different kinds of situations. And I think we've all come to appreciate the nature of the dissatisfied mind, that there is never enough in terms of objects, that there is always something else, more exciting, more exhilarating. You know, thus you have people, you know, skydiving off the Hilton Hotel in London, you know, and doing all these extraordinary things because the mind is never, never satisfied within the world of objects. I think we have, most of us, learned this lesson in our life. But I think often we do tend to repeat in some way the same, not error, we won't say, but the same learning experience in our inner world. Be kind to ourselves here. Yeah. We often find that we sit in judgment inwardly. In meditation, that what we do is one of the first jobs of the meditator, it seems, is to sit in judgment. Now, of course, no one ever begins meditation with this intention, you know, that I'm going to sit here and be this heavy critic, you know, and do this big judgmental number. And yet, often our experience is when we sit down, we find ourselves sitting in judgment about ourselves, about what we're experiencing. And if you just listen to the judge for a while, you see that the nature of the judge is that it is 
always on alert to what is wrong. It is on alert to what is wrong. It has this big pressing interest in imperfection, you know, or weakness, or you know, failure, or whatever we like, might like to call this. It sits there in judgment at times, waiting for looking at what is wrong and also seeking for what is right, which of course we might call happiness. Now, what is it that we judge as being wrong? And of course, this is very interesting in our inner experience. What do you judge as being wrong? It can be a whole variety of things, but often what we judge as being wrong is what we can't accept or what we label as being unwelcome or unspiritual. You know, we get this new word, and something is unspiritual. Now, what we label as being unwelcome is often that which challenges us, which threatens us in some way, or which doesn't flatter us. This is often what is judged as being wrong. The things, the thoughts, the feelings, the reactions and the responses that don't flatter us in some way, don't actually enhance the image of who we would like to be in this situation. When we're angry or impatient or jealous or greedy or resisting, the judge is really often there at the forefront saying, this is not who I should be. This is not what should be experienced. And the list often then seems very endless of what is wrong, and then, of course, so does the task. The length of our list of what is wrong is the length of our task to fix it. You know, if you have found, you know, in the beginning of this retreat that you've already started compiling a kind of shocking list of what you're already aware of, what you need to fix in this next 20 days, this is really a good opportunity to let go of it because we are sinking then already into a kind of mythology of a distorted sense of responsibility and a mistaken sense of happiness. It is no wonder when we have these lists, it is really no wonder that we feel the need at times to be so intense in this work, you know, cut down on sleep to two hours, you know, after these long sittings, these long walkings, I've got so much to do. And it's no wonder at times that we find ourselves involved in this heaviness in meditation, you know, because we, I think underlying it is a sort of unconscious sense of obstacle, of need to get through, of need to work through. And then it seems that happiness must wait. It seems that happiness must wait because every day, of course, or every sitting or every hour, it just seems to bring all these new and unwelcome revelations about what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with ourselves. Now, at times there can come about this idea that there's no purpose in meditation unless we're fixing something. Now, this is when the judge has become dominant. 
It is when the judge has appropriated awareness and appropriated the practice in a particular way and feel that the purpose of it is to fix what is wrong. It's a bit like taking a car into the garage, you know, that you're going to get all this work done on it. And at times this is what the judge feels like it's doing. It's working in order to produce a particular kind of person that's going to be a sort of smoothly running, highly perfected and very spiritual human being. I think it is very important to look at where we get busy in meditation, where we get very involved in trying to fix things, and what kind of mythology or what kind of belief system may actually be creating that busyness and whether it is necessary to have that. Sometimes I think it feels necessary because I think it, at times it feels like if we don't really get stuck in and come to grips with all my difficulties and some scars and my patterns and my karma, that if I somehow don't come to grips with this and get to the bottom of it, that what's going to happen is I'm somehow just going to be overwhelmed and become a victim and become, you know, a totally kind of detestable sort of person, you know, who's just governed by all this imperfection. This is not what happens. This is not what happens when we set aside this kind of busyness. There is an idea, very strong idea that's often unspoken, but I think often commonly held, that believes that personal perfection is a prerequisite to liberation. This is an extraordinarily strong idea, and that is why, you know, sometimes you, you get very, you know, get very heavy into these notions about purification and improvement and, you know, polishing myself or refining myself. Times is a very strong idea that personal perfection is required for enlightenment. Now, I would like to just look at this busyness that comes just in relationship to the whole area of concentration. Now, it is very interesting. You know, in the beginning of a retreat, we make a suggestion that actually it's really quite useful to pay attention. You know, and we suggest the breath. Now, this is enough to really move into action, this fixer and doer. You've probably noticed, you know, that once it has something really to do, there's a lot that you can do with the breath. Um, and then people seem to get drawn into this incredible knot about how to concentrate, how to do it right. You know, it often feels so elusive. I'm trying to concentrate, and yet I can't concentrate. My mind always seems to be preoccupied or fantasizing or thinking or dwelling. And then there comes the thoughts and the conclusions. This is not what should be happening. What should be happening is I should have one breath that follows another breath, and that actually concentration is going to happen after I get rid of the thoughts and the feelings and the preoccupations. 
Now, of course, what we do in relationship to the breath has a very strong similarity to what we do in areas of our lives where we have the same ideas about wrong and right and about how things should be. It is helpful to notice that in our relationship to the breath as you find yourself perhaps getting tied into a knot about it. You know, it, the breath can become a whole nother arena where we do it right or we do it wrong. Now, what is right and wrong about the breath? There is actually nothing. I mean, it's try to breathe wrong. You know, go into a sitting intentionally trying to breathe wrong. We cannot breathe wrong. It's very difficult to breathe wrong. But we have all these ideas about the right and wrong that should be happening in relationship to the breath. So then perhaps it's not the breath that's right and wrong. It seems to be me. I'm doing it wrong. There's something wrong with me. Or in, in happier moments, or in uh, better moments, there's something right with me. And this occasionally happens, of course. And again, like our relationship to happiness, in our relationship to concentration, again we think that concentration is probably going to happen after I've got rid of the difficult, the unpleasant, and the challenging. Now, the Buddha once said that in the mind that is filled with happiness, attention has found a true foundation. So, happiness is not a result of concentration. Happiness is the foundation of concentration. This is an interesting way to look at it. You know, maybe we don't have to struggle to get concentrated. Maybe we have to be more interested in being happy. In how to be happy in this moment. In the mind that is filled with happiness, attention has found a true foundation. Now I think we can look at our lives and know that this is true. If you are in a situation where you feel really in touch with a sense of happiness, you know perhaps you have a very good communication with another person, Everything is there, isn't it? Energy, interest, your mind's not wandering. Hmm? You walk outside, perhaps you have a moment of going for a walk, and you feel really just very appreciative, very delighted going for that walk. Hmm? It's not a struggle, is it? It's the attention just naturally rests in that moment. The attention naturally rests in that moment of communication. The attention rest where there is clear connection and an absence of resistance. Then there is this quality of contentment, attention, true attention, and certainly the attention that we are looking for in meditation is a natural and an organic expression of happiness. When there is that quality of happiness in the meditation, there is no desire to move away from what is and towards what is not. This is in our life. This is in our practice. The movement away, resistance, this is the nature of the unhappy consciousness. It is the nature of unhappiness. And a lot of that unhappiness is being tied up 
in these ideas of right and wrong, what should be, what should not be. A lot of that unhappiness is tied up with expectations and resistance or ambitiousness and self. So perhaps this is where we need to be more interested. Rather than tying ourselves in a huge knot about how to concentrate properly, The happiness of clear connection, the happiness of being present, it has nothing to do with the number or quality of objects that we're in contact with because it has no prejudice. It does not have prejudice. And the primary ingredient of happiness is the lack of prejudice. Now we can see easily that happiness stirs movement. I mean, unhappiness stirs movement. <coughs> unhappiness stirs restlessness. It stirs the movement away from things, the movement towards things. Happiness rests with contentment, just with what is. Unhappiness is carrying a burden that somehow the belief that my happiness is dependent upon modifying what's happening, and so I'm always in motion. First, I think that happiness actually knows a great level of stillness, a great delight in being. can reflect on that in our practice. When you feel unhappy, you know, restless, agitated, discontented. Just reflect a little bit on what we're experiencing, that we don't want what is going on. We feel aversion or resistance to what is going on. We think it should be different. And thinking something should be different carries a companion of rejection, of negation, of denial, of avoidance. And then what we have is an opponent, an adversary, an enemy that we want to get away from. And then our belief is that our well-being is somehow dependent on subduing or on overcoming this opponent. I'd like to read you something from the translation by Thomas Martin, Chang Su, called The Empty Boat. If a person is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, Even though that person be a bad-tempered person, they won't become angry. But if they see a man in the other boat, they will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout's not heard, they will shout again and yet again and begin cursing, and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, they wouldn't be shouting and not angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. Now, I think really that a lot of our meditation is actually learning how to stop shouting at ourselves. Learning how to stop creating opponents within ourselves. Learning how to live in a way in which we have no adversary. Learning how to welcome. 
What happens to greed, to fear, to distractedness, to thought, to anger, when we stop shouting at them? You know, we're shouting at them every time. We're trying to fix them, trying to get rid of them, trying to subdue them. What happens when we stop shouting at them? If they cease to be opponents, it is not that they overwhelm us. It's not that they overpower us. Our whole challenge here is to connect with, to be clear, to be present with what is. They do not overwhelm. They cease to be opponents and they begin to change. There is some possibility of a totally organic letting go, a totally organic understanding. It is an interesting experiment. I think meditation can reveal to us that so much of the struggles that feature in our lives are actually not necessary. That in a way we need to be willing to step out of struggle, to experiment a little, to find out what happens with non-resistance, to find out what happens with an open-hearted welcome to find out what happens when we stop shouting and stop trying to subdue. It is interesting to try it, to renounce, to let go of our ideas about what should be happening and just to be present with what is. It is a major renunciation. There's that very wonderful Zen saying, and the Master says that when my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. This is somehow interesting for us to try. So much of our shouting is all about defenses and our ideas of who we are and our ideas of what should be. And sometimes we're so busy keeping the roof on that we can't see the moonlit sky. To try just letting go of some of those ideas, of just being present, to find how much natural, very organic attentiveness actually comes to us, how much energy we have available to us, how much interest we have available to us. To actually just see the dance unfold inwardly, that the breath is present, the thoughts arise and pass, the sounds arise and pass, the feelings arise and pass, the images arise and pass. We don't need to make any missions anywhere. We can just be present, just embracing, just accommodating that dance. And then attention is so available to us. And actually, we discover so is happiness. So it's a great depth of peace, of simple being, of simply delight in being. It is not necessarily that thoughts stop, or that feelings stop, or that images stop. They continue, probably much less, when we are not involved in so much of the resistance. But so much of the busyness around them ends. You know, the busyness that is created through judgment. 
so much of that in. And so the thoughts and the feelings and the images that are present, we cannot call them a distraction. They are not a distraction. They are just present. They are part of this dance and worthy of and receiving of this wonderful quality of attentiveness because they remind us to be present. The Milarepa once said that a wandering thought is the essence of wisdom. Not because there's something special about a wandering thought, but because everything is special. In that everything that occurs in the moment reveals to us beginnings and endings, life and death, vitality and energy, change and emptiness, everything that arises reveals that to us. And this is where our attention is. This is where we also find a wonderful depth of peace and of happiness, where there is room, room for the unpleasant, room for the difficult, room for the delightful, room for the simple. There is attention without prejudice, an attention that brings with it happiness and peace. May all beings live with contentment. May all beings live with serenity. May all beings live with happiness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.